Coming up on today's show, the issue of residential schools. First of all, why is the Catholic Church seemingly so reluctant to issue an apology? And why has it been so absent in Canadian education for so long? We'll chat with Charlene Bearhead. And of course, the big Keystone decision, sending a ripple through the province and through the pipeline sector. What does it mean? We'll get two perspectives, one from the chief economist of the Canada Energy Regulator and another from energy analyst Markham Hisla. The Catholic Church and um, the seeming reluctance to offer an apology for their involvement in the residential schools in our country. And in the wake of the discovery of the 215 children's bodies at the site of that former school in Kamloops, there have been repeated calls on the Catholic Church, and indeed the Pope himself, to apologize for the Church's involvement in Canada's school system. A papal apology was mentioned as one of the steps to reconciliation in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. The Prime Minister says he personally asked the Pope to apologize back in 2018, calls that to this point have continued to go unanswered. Now, Jeremy Bergen is an associate professor of religious studies and theological studies at Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo. He's also the author of Ecclesial Repentance, The Churches Confront Their Sinful Pasts. Um, Professor Bergen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, you've done a lot of work taking a look at um, this this very issue, as a matter of fact. And and you you contend there's... There's actually a theological reason to why the Catholic Church may be hesitant to come out and issue a forthright apology, right? Yes, I, I think many people, uh, especially those observing, are, are kind of puzzled by what many of the Catholic statements that don't seem to land. They don't seem to yeah. really acknowledge full responsibility. And I think there might be many reasons, uh, including liability and other things. But I think one of the theological reasons um, is is in Catholic uh, self-understanding, at least in traditional Catholic self-understanding, the Church itself uh, is not a body that sins, is not a body that does wrong. And certainly members and individuals, even leaders, you know, they can all do wrong. And so many of these public statements um, that have been made by bishops and, and by popes in the past have acknowledged wrongs done by individuals. And I think when it comes to the residential schools, a question, there's no question that there are many wrongs done by individuals, and so that has to be acknowledged. I'm not taking away from that at all. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also the, the fact that the policy itself, the Church's very involvement, this was a decision that was made by the Church at the time, and until the Church in the present acknowledges that and says that it was wrong, um, there you know, these statements will not really communicate the, the, the level of seriousness uh, that is called for in this case. Yeah, because you're right. We have seen statements that come close to an apology. They, they recognize the, the struggle and the hardship and the wrongdoing, but they don't actually apologize for it. So it's a very fine line you're talking about here. It is. It is. And I think, um, I, I think one of the things that that's important to recognize, and I, I, I think sometimes the Catholic Church hasn't done as well on this as it could, is to, is to simply recognize that, you know, these, these statements are going to be interpreted by the public, by the public who may not appreciate all the nuances of, of the statements. Um, and, and so to really, uh, you know, my advice to them would be to, to make public statements with, with the public in mind. Um, and to and to uh, you know and to not be vague, but but to really be very clear and definitive. What is the delineation between the papal apology and other levels of Catholic hierarchy apologizing? Because we have seen several bishops, including mm-hmm. the bishop here in Alberta, who has come forward and issued a you know a very heartfelt apology 
full stop. Yes, yes, I think so. You know, and I think... um, you know, I think there's no formula for this. I think here, too, uh, I, I think at, at this point, uh, there have been many uh, statements by individual bishops, by individual, um, you know, uh, religious orders that ran schools. Some of them have been very, uh, very comprehensive. Some of them have, you know, have, have been less adequate. And I think in some ways, there's just a lot of noise out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the public is simply at this point, uh, especially survivors and their families and so on, saying, you know, this is something that needs to be given a kind of a definitive statement. Um, and, and really only the Pope can do that. And so, I mean, the Pope, there is a track record, uh, yeah. different Popes, Pope John Paul II, uh, other Popes have, have spoken uh, words of regret. They haven't always acknowledged the Church was the uh, entity that did wrong, but they've certainly uh, asked forgiveness and so on in the past. So there's precedent for this, and I think, um, you know, I, I think just in in terms of the ability to communicate to those who need to hear it as a kind of a definitive final apology, but not final in the sense that you know now everything's done and it can move on. I think in many ways what. What I hear um, from those who have been so deeply affected by the residential schools is that this apology statement is necessary in order for much of the hard work of reconciliation to proceed. But it's a kind of a statement of what the truth is, uh, acknowledging the truth of the past and saying the Church did this, the Church should not have done this, and now the church commits to a new way forward. Right. So asking for a full-blown apology is probably not going to move this needle at all. Um, sort of reevaluating what kind of a statement you need from the church in order to advance this is the better way to go. I think so. Yes. You mentioned some of the historical precedent. We have seen popes issue... I guess, were they not full apologies? I'm just thinking of the incidents with Africa and other areas like that. The, the church has issued more fulsome apologies, haven't they? Well, uh, so I think different parts of the Church have. So so it's it's sometimes interesting to um, compare how, uh, you know, a, a papal apology might be reported in the, in the public press versus what a Pope actually said. So even with the word sorry or with the word apology, for example, that, that was a word that Pope John Paul II almost never used, and yet, you know, he would ask, God for forgiveness for things that were done by members of the Church. And so that wasn't quite an apology in that the word sorry wasn't used, and it wasn't necessarily saying the Church did something wrong, but rather people who are members of the Church did something wrong. But I think as as those are received, those sorts of distinctions aren't meaningful, I think, for many members of the public. Uh, and so it's reported as an apology and maybe assessed as an apology, but as an apology, it also maybe seems to fall short. Um, but I think part of what I wanted to say in my opinion piece is that I really do believe there are the resources within the Catholic Church's own self-understanding to, to say the Church was wrong, that holiness and sinfulness in the Church, it's not a zero-sum game. Right. They can exist at the same, you know, simultaneously. Um, and that this kind of kind of uh, admission is is necessary, a kind of confession, a repentance, uh, is necessary in order to commit to the kinds of things that that need to be done into the future. 
Very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your interest. Yeah, that's Jeremy Bergen, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Theological Studies at Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo, also the author of Ecclesial Repentance, The Churches Confront Their Sinful Pasts. Well, the entire country has been grappling with the discovery of 215 children's bodies in unmarked graves at the site of a former residential school in Kamloops, B.C. The understanding there will be many, many more similar discoveries in the coming days. And at the same time, we've learned this discovery is not at all surprising to thousands of Canadians who have heard these stories and have told these stories for decades. One of the most troubling things for me personally is the fact that I wasn't even told about Canada's residential school system when I was in school. It simply wasn't taught. I graduated high school in 1989. I learned about Australia's issues with their Indigenous people. I learned about the internment of Japanese Canadians in concentration camps during the Second World War. But not one mention of the residential school system. The end result, ultimately, is a generation of ignorant Canadians, including myself, who just weren't taught about this. The Truth and Reconciliation Report calls for better curriculum on the history of the schools, and it has gotten somewhat better in recent years. I checked with my kids, and yes, they are being taught about it now. Uh, Charlene Bearhead is the Director of Reconciliation at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. She's worked as a teacher within public school systems in our province and others, and is closely involved with this education of residential schools. Um, Charlene, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. You know, Charlene, I've talked to a lot of people in my age group and older and around my age, and my story is not uncommon. In fact, it's pretty typical. Um, and I hear from listeners saying, we just didn't learn about this at school at all, period. And and we're really sorry we didn't. And you know... That's the common story for people much younger than you as well. Really, up until the time of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which really started in earnest in around 2009, um, and then their their interim report in 2012, that's when people really started to take up this work in education, you know, in Alberta and across the country. But, uh, you know, we, as you said, you know, it's interesting that you say, well, I didn't hear about this. And you have callers saying, I didn't know yeah, about this. Yeah. And I've heard grade four children that have said, why didn't they tell us sooner? Why did they lie to us? So the inevitable result then, obviously, is you've got millions of Canadians walking around woefully ignorant of this cornerstone of our history. This just, it wasn't introduced, so we just don't have the understanding around it. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate you situating that as our history, because that's exactly what it is. It is our history. And, you know, we owe it to our children. And and that's why, you know, people might ask, well, what is the Royal Canadian Geographical Society doing, you know, working yeah. around, um, you know, educating around Indian residential schools? And with the mandate of making Canada better known to Canadians and the world, we also have a responsibility. We all have a place in this and to teach and provide education for all those generations that don't know and that haven't had that education yet because it's happening in schools more and more. But it's not what's what's there for the general public, right? Yeah, for the people who are already out of school, um, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of listeners are saying, "Well, the reason you weren't taught about it, Shay, is because it was still going on." Is it really that simple? Well, you know, I mean, I would love to say that it was still going on, absolutely. And you know, some people would ask, "Are 
Indigenous children still not forcibly removed from their communities to go to school if there's no school in their community. But when we talk about that, you didn't hear about it because it was still going on. But then, even then, why? We hear about current events all the time, right? Sure. But when it's the, you know, the agenda of wealthy white people, for the most part, wealthy white politicians even more, and it doesn't suit their fiscal and religious agendas, then, of course, it's kept quiet. And, and you know, when we think about it's not e- it's even worse than kept quiet, I would say. Because we have to remember that during that 160 years plus, where First Nation, Métis, and Inuit children were forced into residential schools and taught that their knowledge was invalid and less than, non-Indigenous children were taught the same thing about Indigenous people right from K-12 to and through post-secondary. And, you know, there was an incredible example of that ignorance of someone who's supposedly an educated person in the Winnipeg Sun this past week. And it was a retired judge named Brian Giesbrick that I wrote, and it was shocking when somebody sent it to me, and yet not. And he writes in there as a supposedly educated person that infected children entered the schools and infected others, when in fact we know it was the exact opposite, that it was children who were infected with tuberculosis in residential schools that were sent home to infect their families. You know, just in this comment about some opportunists might exploit these dead children for financial gain. And so, I mean, to me, that's not even lack of education. That's abuse of knowledge, right? And we see that a lot. So when we talk about reconciliation, and uh, there are so many people that I have spoken to here on the show and have talked to who have said um, they feel absolutely shaken by the discovery in Kamloops, Mm -hmm. and it's jarring to a lot of people. And the question they ask is, what can I do? I I, I didn't know. This This is a learning moment for me. I feel horrible, and I want to help walk the path to reconciliation. Um, mm-hmm. Where does education fit into that discussion? As you say, it's being introduced in schools. Now kids are learning about it. Are they learning enough about it? Well, I was very excited to, you know, to hear the updated numbers that 56 out of 61 school districts in this province are rejecting the curriculum that, that steers away from the truth. I think that it's in pockets and it's really about leadership. So, and when people ask what they can do, well, I say go to your kids' schools, your grandchildren's schools, and ask, what are you doing? Are you teaching truth? What's happening there? Push at the you know MLAs, because, of course, it's provincial jurisdiction, um, around demanding that we teach truth in schools. But also you can educate yourself. As I said, you know, Canadian Geographic, we have a Path to Reconciliation website where you can learn about residential schools. The Legacy of Hope Foundation has excellent information. And on the 14th, so we're 10, so four days out, we know that Canada will still be going to court to fight Cindy Blackstock and the Assembly of First Nations so that they don't have to compensate Indigenous children whose lives have been destroyed. So, you know, make your presence known. Talk to your kids. Your kids will be able to help educate you in some ways. But there are, there's online resources. Educate yourself. Speak truth. Have the courage to just speak that truth. A lot of discussion about, you mentioned the curriculum here in Alberta and um, the age appropriateness for introducing these concepts to kids. What do you mm. think is the right age? I mean, is it, is it ever too early? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I coordinated the Education Days for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Coordination of Education for the National Inquiry, and that question's asked, asked a lot. How, you know, people would say they're too young. Well, 
we're actually in a school in Elk Island Public Schools today and working with children from grade five, all, or pardon me, from five-year-olds in kindergarten all the way to grade six. I say five years old is a great place to start. And obviously, there are books like Shinshi's Canoe, Shishi Ecto, When I Was Eight. We need to do it in an age-appropriate right, way. Yeah. But we should be teaching from the time kids enter school. And when people say, why do you say five? I say, because we don't get them younger than that um, in school. But yeah, absolutely. Let's just at least tell them the truth so we don't have kids in grade four saying, why didn't you tell us sooner? Yeah, and I think that's the most important thing, right? Just tell us the truth when we're kids Mm -hmm. and and educate us. If you're going to teach us Canadian history, teach us all of Canada's history. Exactly. And you know, that is it, right? Isn't that what education is supposed supposed to be? We shouldn't be trying to you know, sort of brainwash the kids to think what we, I don't ever want people to believe it because I said it. I want us to give enough information and tell truth and teach truth so that people can make their own decisions about what's real. Charlene, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. That's Charlene Bearhead, who is the Director of Reconciliation at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Right now, though, we're going to talk about pipelines. Keystone, as we know, is dead. TransCanada has announced they have abandoned the project once and for all in light of uh, the unwavering opposition out of the United States. Of course, Donald Trump did approve the line, and then in one of his first acts as President Joe Biden cancelled the permit, and there has been zero movement from there, none whatsoever. Uh, Very bad news for our provincial government, of course. Jason Kenney invested, so far, at least $1.3 billion in this pipeline, and there will be nothing to show for it at this point. Uh, that's a big hit. Uh, what does it mean for the pipeline sector in general? What does it mean for our province in general? Believe it or not, there is some good news when it comes to pipelines, some positive indicators at least. Business appears to be booming. In a report released by Canada's energy regulator yesterday, we see some rapidly rising revenues. Darren Christie is the chief economist with the Canada Energy Regulator, and he joins us now. Darren, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good to be here, Shay. Thanks. So, yeah, this report on pipeline activity and uh, some some pretty positive numbers. Just run through them for us. Yeah, so so the report looked at what's happened over the last five years uh, with the, the major pipelines in Canada. And in doing so, uh, we also highlighted what was happening, you know, in, in the markets they serve. So, you know, what was happening, for example, with production out of Canada on both the oil and gas side. Um, and, you know, as you alluded to, what we really uh, highlighted was that over the last number of years, uh, by and large, I don't think this will surprise a lot of people, but pipelines have been pretty full. Uh, we've had significantly growing production uh, on the crude oil side. Um, and, you know, with that, it's it's been filling up uh, the oil pipelines. On the gas side, a bit of a different story. We've We've had production that is relatively stable. Um, but it's been kind of relocating within Western Canada 
in terms of where exactly uh, the gas is coming from. And so with that, there was there was also a, a push to uh, grow capacity so that, you know, those new areas of, of production uh, weren't bottlenecked. So, so yes, we've had uh, pretty full pipes overall. And, and with that, uh, you know, lots of investment happening in the space uh, and, you know, revenues and the finances overall of, of the pipeline industry have been quite strong. Darren, I found it interesting going through the report. You know, we haven't seen any new lines come on, but we've seen capacity increase. So are these developments within the existing pipelines? How is that happening? Yeah, so so what you're noting there is, is specifically on the crude oil pipes. And uh, indeed, we haven't had a, a new project uh, come into service in the last five years, but we did see quite a, a large rise in capacity, and that was on the existing systems. Uh, so, for example, on the Enbridge mainline, which is the biggest export uh, system out of Canada, uh, capacity went up by over half a million barrels per day. And we also saw some increases on the uh, express pipeline that Enbridge owns, uh, as well as the, the existing Keystone system, not to be confused, of course, with Keystone XL. And the way they did that, I mean, we, we kind of gener- generically refer to it as, as optimizations. Um, and it, it's through a host of things. Some of it is, you know, improving how they schedule and, and batch the movement of the crude through their lines. Uh, and a significant one has also been increased use of uh, what we call drag-reducing agents. So it's kind of chemicals that, that help flow uh, more crude through a, a given pipeline. So there's been, you know, with, with the growing production and the uh, capacity becoming tighter and tighter, there was just a, a lot of effort uh, across the different systems to kind of squeeze as much uh, product through the existing lines as they possibly could. And, and hence, we, we saw, as I said, very large uh, increases in capacity on those existing systems. Interesting. Okay, yesterday's announcement about the Keystone XL extension, as you said. Um, how does that fit into this? Obviously, there was a lot of people hoping to see it happen. Uh, shut down by Biden immediately when he came into office. Just how does that affect the overall scope of the pipeline economy? Well, you know, I mean, this report was was really backward looking, so so it's not something that we dive into in detail. Of course, as we were preparing it, uh, you know, it, it was it was already a situation where KXL uh, had had the permit revoked and and the project was was suspended uh, by TransCanada even prior to yesterday's announcement. Um, but you know, in in terms of of what it means going forward, I mean, the the section where we highlight. Uh, what's happening on Keystone XL? We also highlight, of course, that there are two uh, two significant projects under construction that will add other capacity to the the crude oil uh, uh, capacity out of Western Canada. So, you know, the Enbridge Line Three replacement is first up. It's it's targeted to come on stream uh, Q4 this year is is what Enbridge is saying. Um, and so that will add somewhere in the neighborhood, the, the entirety of the project will add about 370 million barrels a day, pardon me, 1,000 barrels per day. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the other one that, that is certainly uh, talked about a lot is, is the Trans Mountain expansion. Mm-hmm. And, and with construction in flight there, uh, late next year is when uh, they're targeting in service, and that's uh, over half a million barrels per day. So Keystone XL, you know, it, it, it's, it was certainly a, a, a big uh, 
big pipe that was was planned um but you know there there are these other two and so you know the the how things will shake out ultimately of course it depends on uh how much production changes over the coming years but certainly in in the next little while uh there's there's quite a bit of capacity coming on stream from those other two projects which um you know will will go a long way to to providing the the capacity uh uh, to even grow production out of Western Canada. Interesting. Okay. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Darren. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take care. Yeah, you too. That's Darren Christie, who is the Chief Economist with the Canada Energy Regulator. All right. The end of the Keystone extension, Keystone XL. Uh, you heard the announcement yesterday by TransCanada and the provincial government. Uh, our government, of course, sunk $1.3 billion into that project uh, and in the end, got nothing for it. So uh, that's one discussion around this. What does it mean for the pipeline sector uh, and the economy in our province going forward? We just heard from one guest who said things are going pretty well, actually. Our next guest takes the other position. Markham Hislip argues that this is the death of the age of the oil pipeline. Markham, uh, not one for hyperbole, you, but uh, the death of the age of the oil pipeline because of this announcement? Well, Shay, uh, let me clarify and explain. <laughs> I don't think, in, in my opinion, I don't think we will see another crude oil pipeline built between Canadian provinces or from Canada into the U.S. Okay. And let me illustrate why with the example of the Energy East pipeline, because there's been a lot of a lot of calls lately to resurrect that project. So. The Canadian Energy Research Institute says that, on average, it takes nine years to review and approve a new pipeline. Then it takes another three to four years to build a pipeline of that size. So that means that Energy East would come into service roughly around 2035. So what's happening in 2035 in eastern Canada? Well, Quebec, that's the date that Quebec is banning the sale of new gasoline-powered cars. And I w- and not only that, Quebec leads Canada in terms of the adoption of electric vehicles. Ontario, given its pivot, uh, the manu- automaker's pivot to electric vehicle manufacturing, can't be that far behind. That seems like a really, really bad time to be bringing in to service a fifty, a, you know, fifty-year right. piece of energy infrastructure. Which I guess explains why TC Energy, which is the, the proponent, uh, was the proponent of. Keystone Excel, why, why they haven't put the project back on the table. Yeah, exactly. So I think, okay, so the argument you're making is not that we're not going to see uh, pipelines being utilized in North America. It's just we're not going right. to see any new ones utilized. That's exactly right. And then you add on top of that that the oil sands, which is the only sector in the oil and gas, in the oil industry that's, that could possibly expand production, uh, is really shifting from extensive growth where you grow supply, grow production, to intensive growth where they try to get more value out of the uh, the bitumen that they do produce. And we saw that, you know, just last week, Suncor released its net zero to 50. And one of the things it said, it didn't get a lot of attention, but it sure caught my eye in their investor presentation, is that they are not growing uh, production anymore. They're going to they produce about eight hundred thousand barrels a day, and that's where they're going to stay. And they're going to concentrate on making more money out of that eight hundred thousand barrels a day. So, bring put all that together with you know the well 
publicized opposition to pipeline projects from environmentalists and First Nations and communities and and so on. I I, I would be absolutely shocked if a pipeline uh, company put a new project on the table anytime in in the uh, in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think you make a good point there, Mark. I mean, it, it's not just Suncor. It was all of the big oil sands producers that announced their um, zero gas emissions by 2050. They, they, they're all on board. CNRL, Synovus, Imperial Oil, all of them. Um, and they're talking more about carbon sequestration. We heard the hydrogen announcement. So it looks like this long-talked-about energy transition and being part of it and being a leader in that might be starting to happen in Alberta now. Well, you know, I wrote the book in 2019. I, I wrote the book, uh, The Future of the, the New Alberta Advantage, Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands, in which I, I predicted that this was going to be the trend. And, and here we are, you know, in, uh, only two years later, and we've seen uh, it's even arrived faster than I thought. And there's another, uh, you, you know, you, you referenced the, um, the uh, initiative that was announced yesterday by the oil sands mm-hmm. companies. Uh, and one of the point, the fine, it's kind of in the fine print, but they said, yes, there's going to be oil demand, you know, for a long time yet, decades yet, but it's increasingly going to be used for making things. So we're talking about carbon fiber, which is something that Alberta Innovates is, is working really hard on right now and expects to have maybe a carbon fiber plant in five to seven years. We're talking about plastics and other petrochemicals. That's the direction the industry is going in, and very clearly the, the, this industry recognizes it and is, is trying, and with that announcement yesterday, in my opinion, has leapfrogged a lot of other countries' industries in terms of making that pivot to the low-carbon future. And, you know, you and I have talked about this uh, before, Shay, and, and I've been very skeptical and kind of critical of the industry, and all of a sudden just with a snap of the fingers, they've, you know, they're headed in the right direction now. Yeah, you know what, Markman, I think it's another polarized discussion that we have in this province, and I don't think it should be, and I don't think it needs to be, because, um, you know, a lot of people out there are just sort of like drill, baby, drill, and if you, if you don't want the oil, then let them freeze, and, you know, you can't run your cars, and you can't heat your house, and all that's very true, and that's understandable, but we're in the middle of a transition. The oil industry seem to recognize it. The government is coming on board and talking about a bunch of new things, so it's not like it's a doom and gloom story. There's some positive aspects to this transitional economy if Alberta gets involved, and it looks like we are. Let me explain why all Albertans should get behind this in a big way. The uh, Alberta oil and gas industry uh, writ large, but the oil sands in particular, is has really rapidly matured. It's a mature industry now. And one of the ways that it's driving down costs is to adopt these new digital technologies like artificial intelligence and automation and robotics. And, you know, I interviewed last year, I interviewed Lance Mortlock from Ernst & Young, who had done a, a report that estimated that 50,000 jobs in the Canadian oil and gas industry, most of them in Alberta, would be lost by 2040. And then I talked to other people who are working in the industry, like uh, Dave Shook, who's an engineer uh, who actually is working on automation, uh, automation projects. And he said, oh, no, it'll happen way before that. We might even see it as early as 2025. So my point is that the industry as it's structured now is going to be shedding thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs. 
where are we going to replace them? How are we going to replace them? Well, this new direction, let's, you know, let's build carbon fiber plants and let's uh, get into hydrogen and let's do all of these other kinds of things. You know, let's build renewable wind and solar and, and maybe some uh, small modular reactors. There's lots of other things that can, that can work in conjunction with the oil sands to replace the jobs that are going to be, uh, that are going to be lost through, uh, through these uh, new digital technologies. So it really is in the best interest of everybody to get on board with this new strategy because clearly uh, supporting the status quo and resisting change uh, is just not going to work. No, it's not. You're going to be you're going to be the blockbuster video when Netflix hits the market. Essentially, is what's going to happen. Everybody's going to move past you. We have seen this. We have seen this uh, this movie before. Yeah, uh, we know how this plays out. And uh, I think the uh, the oil sands companies, uh, you know, have, uh, are worried about this, and they see the opportunity to make the pivot now, which is excellent. That that's really good news that they do it sooner rather than later. But you know what? Uh, the policy and regulate, regulatory framework around this this pivot, uh, I hear over and over again from the experts I interview in different, you know, like in North America and, and Europe, is policy and regulation is really, really important to the transition. And policy and regulation depends on politicians. And politicians need to know that they're not too far out in front of their voters. So, you know, what Albertans think about this it really does matter yeah, because right. it essentially gives permission to the politicians to to make the changes that are required to support what the oil sands companies want to do. To move in that direction, yeah. Okay, good stuff. Thanks very much, Markham. Always appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. That is Markham Hislop. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.